Hi, I'm Jennifer Gassich. And my name is Mateusz Benko. This is the Let's Talk Ecosystems podcast. From activists to entrepreneurs, leaders to practitioners, we will learn how young people are making a positive change for our planet. In this series, we talk with change makers who are taking action to restore and protect nature as we move forward in the United Nations decade for ecosystem restoration. So, Mateusz, do you know what percentage of the world's terrestrial life forms call the Amazon rainforest home? A third, a quarter, or zero? Definitely not zero. A third, I would go then. Spot on, as usual, Mateusz. And the Amazon is also home to one quarter of the Earth's fresh water, and it plays a key role in absorbing carbon and moderating climate. Indigenous peoples' communities play a crucial role in maintaining and safeguarding the biodiversity in the Amazon biome. And today we have a wonderful guest with us, Natalie Knowles. We're so happy to have you. She's going to tell us all about her work with the Kayopa project that she's been involved in since 2015 and her work with communities to harness conservation-based adventure travel that protects Indigenous culture and the natural resources that are so unique to the pristine Jingu River Basin. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here and talk about the work we're doing down in the Amazon. Excellent. Thank you very much, Natalie. First question. What is Kayapo territory? And can you just tell us something more? Honestly, I've never heard of it before. I guess that most of the listeners did not hear it, but can you tell us some more? Absolutely. It's a pretty incredible place. So it's it's right in the heart of heart of Brazil, in the state of Pará. And uh, it's 11 million hectares large. So that's about the size of a small country. And it's uh, owned and protected by this one indigenous group, the Kayapo, who've uh, been protecting it for generations. And it's really, really important. It's through this, the Jingu River runs right through it. And um, and what's important about it is it's on right on the edge of deforestation. So it's kind of on the frontier, the front lines. Um, there's tons of loggers and miners looking to get into this territory and they kind of hold hold that border um, this huge territory and protect themselves, their own territory, all the species within it, as well as, you know, other indigenous groups living deeper in the Amazon. To illustrate that size, can you tell us how many people live there? Do you, do you know? Yeah, about 10,000 Kayapo live in the territory, which isn't too many. It's It's quite sparsely populated, but the area is huge. You can see it on Google Maps, on satellite images from space, you can see the edge of the territory, which, which so it's huge. And it's also, you can, you know, see the deforestation going around the edge of it. I see. One more question from my side. I'm always curious about etymology. Do you know what does it mean, Kayapo? Yes, actually. So the Kayapo is a name that another Indigenous group gave the Kayapo. Um, they call themselves the Mebengokre, um, which is, you know, their word for people, our people. And Kaipo is actually a slightly derogatory term from another indigenous group that means the monkey people. So 
it's a name given given to them by the outside, and and they call themselves in their language and their people Mebengokre. Well, uh, Nat, can I ask you, what is the connection between indigenous peoples and ecosystem restoration? I understand that they're known as the guardians of biodiversity and the guardians of the forest. So could you please walk us through what the connection is between indigenous peoples and ecosystem restoration and conserving biodiversity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, indigenous peoples themselves are super diverse, but so I'll speak on in terms of the Kaipo, at least, they've, you know, like I said, been at that frontier of deforestation. So right on, right on the front lines and holding, holding their territory. And the reason they've been doing that is because their lives and their livelihoods and their cultures are so intimately related with the forest that they live in. All their food sources, their building sources for their homes, their traditional dress, their traditional body paint, all of it comes from the forest and the river. So they just have this innate um, understanding of it and this, you know, intrinsic need and understanding of the need to protect it and safeguard it. What are some of the things that uh, we may not think about when it comes to ecosystem services? So there are people who are living in forest communities, but are there people outside of the forest communities who are also benefiting from the ecosystem services that they protect? Yeah, absolutely. There's, I mean, large-scale global ecosystem services, so it's a huge source of carbon sequestration, so helping us maintain our, our climate. Same with biodiversity. Massive amounts of biodiversity are held within the Amazon. You know, we've got camera traps and we're getting endangered species, endemic species, rare species all the time, and they're just common there. You know, they, they seem, they've got large populations of things like peccary and hyacinth macaws and all these species that are endangered and so that's that's really important. The Amazon holds you know tons of medicinal property plants as well and yeah and even on a small scale like with the Kaipo protecting their river and the more they protect it you know communities outside are benefiting from having healthier and bigger populations of, of fish for food and things like that so it's um, really important. What is driving the deforestation and who is driving that train of deforestation? Yeah, so the three major industries, I guess, driving deforestation would be um, agriculture, logging and mining. So mining is going in and it's, it's illegal in Indigenous territory. All three are in, illegal in Indigenous territories. So miners are desperate to get into the territory to mine for gold. Loggers are another one, perhaps a little bit less less prevalent in this area, um, but you know, seeking those hardwood, rainforest species, that mahogany, that ipe, that kind of uh, wood products. And then agriculture is a big one. There's lots of burning of the Amazons to make space for cattle and soy crops. And so, you know, it's it's really and all these all these products are being exported and sold throughout the world so it's it's everyone that's kind of pushing that deforestation it's illegal and there's people doing it on the ground but it's kind of our whole economic system that's pushing that deforestation are you working with the Kayopo communities to help them access markets so that they can get more involved in um, selling or trading goods that have been sustainably produced in the forest yeah, so the overall Kaipo project is looking to help the Kaipo continue to protect their land the way they have. And to do that uh, requires a fair amount of money in terms of 
they're doing surveillance on this huge territory and they don't have a lot of people. It's not very populated. So it often, and it's rough terrain. So that often involves expeditions or flyovers or that kind of thing. So they need resources to do that. And so, yeah, there's a, a few different projects on sustainably sourced forest products. So they, they sell harvested Brazil nuts, you know, ethically sourced and collected and obviously very, very natural and sustainable. And Brazil nuts, they do the same thing with kumaru seeds, which are a seed that's, you know, grown in the, in the forest requires that intact forest to grow and is sold to places like Lush or the body shop, which use them for soaps and um, yeah, sustainable soaps and beauty products, I guess. And, um, and then other things like baskets or handicrafts or bracelets and that sort of thing as well. I'm sorry, I might be naive, but what comes to my mind is why this territory is not protected or is it protected? It is protected. Um, so it's, it's protected legally. The problem is, is there's not a lot of enforcement of the law in the area. So they, tech, they have the rights to their territory, but it's basically left up to themselves to, to defend it and keep illegal loggers and miners out. So that's the challenge is the government supports them in some ways, um, but it's, it kind of fluctuates and it depends on the, the political landscape of, at the time. So there's been times when there's been more support or less support from the government. But generally, you know, it's, it's a frontier. It's kind of wild west. Like there's not a lot of uh, law and order in, in the area. And so the Kaipo are pretty much left to their own devices to, um, to guard their territory. So Nat, you're Canadian, if I'm right, working uh, in Brazil and the Amazon. So could you walk us through what a typical day is on the job for you when you're in the Amazon? Mm-hmm. Definitely very different. So it's, um, I usually stay in one of the communities that I'm working in, not in the community, but uh, we usually sort of camped outside. I've got some some shelters there so I sleep in a hammock which I love and usually you know we're up with the sun which is six or so and have some coffee for breakfast and then usually we're going into the forest working with Kaipo on different things whether it's um, trails and finding locations for tourist activities or we're doing camera trapping and sort of environmental impact, conservation monitoring, uh, stuff like that. So teaching the Kaipo to use camera traps and do the environmental impact and monitoring themselves, which is great. So yeah, we're usually there in the forest doing some sort of walking through the forest, quite dense, finding lots of different, there's new things every day that you walk through the forest. It's pretty incredible. And then we usually come back for lunch and a bit of a siesta gets pretty hot midday there and then usually out again in the forest or up the river doing different activities every day it's always always changing always going to new new places and um, with new people and then back you know before dark is always the goal Um, it's not always great to be on the river or in the forest at night and um usually some some fish or rice or beans for dinner and uh, to bed as the sun sets, which is quite early there. So it's a busy and tiring and incredible uh, 
day always there. Based on your experience, what lessons should we take from indigenous communities and practices when assessing the ecosystem restoration? Um, that's a great question. I think they have this incredible connection to their land and to the the river and forest that they rely on. And they see that connection, you know, daily. It's part of their daily activity. And I think we have... Um, we're so detached from that in our daily life. We don't see where our food's coming from. We don't see where our energy is coming from. We don't see um, any of those connections. So any opportunity that we have to, to rebuild those connections with, with nature and with the land that we're living on and using and recreating on and, and all that, I think really is super important because the more that you see those connections, the more you see what you, what you rely on, then the more you're, I think you're inclined to live in a way that protects them. Are there any restorations projects actually taking place as well? Because we talked about deforestation, but are yeah. there any restorations projects also ongoing in the same time? Yeah, definitely. So um, so this region that we've got the uh, tourism project happening in, in the Jingu, um, for a couple decades, for the last couple decades um, before this project started, there had been illegal fishermen coming upriver from the nearest town um, to commercially fish. So they've been coming up with nets, collecting huge amounts of fish, you know, netting off the whole river and taking the fish out to market to sell. There had also been poachers coming in to take stingrays, primarily for Asian markets that are looking to use them for medicinal or uh, aphrodisiac type uses. And um, so that had fully decimated the the river the Kaipo were having not a lot of food coming from the river really hard to fish and just the general the river ecosystem was really really negatively impacted and then the connections are so deep that's impacting the Kaipo it's also impacting the forest because the river and the forest are intricately linked and so with this so the primary the tourism project started with fly fishing as the primary activity and to do that you need to have good fish in the river to fly fish it's catch and release but so as we started the fly fishing tourism project, we also put a guard station at the mouth of the river. And so the Kaipo have been guarding the, the river from, from these illegal fishermen. And then um, we've been working with fish biologists to restore the river ecosystem. And it's been hugely successful. So already in five years, the fish populations have exploded. The Kaipo are super happy in terms of you know, having way more fish available to eat for them. The fly fishing is really successful. There's lots of payara and wolf fish and haku, all these great species that they love to catch and release fish. And then the kaipo, rather than getting paid for, again, for these consumptive activities where they're going to take the fish out, these illegal fishermen, they were paying small amounts to the kaipo to get access. And um, now they're getting paid for fishermen to be in there, but they're, you know, catch and release fly fishing so getting a couple fish a day and putting them back in the river so it's been really cool and it's just continuing you know I think it'll take some more time for it to restore and a lot of it's a bit of a waiting game for sure it's uh, you know there's active restoration and then at this point we're kind of on passive restoration of letting the ecosystem naturally return to its healthy state. Is this action quantifiable like is it too early to actually be able to quantify how many species have recovered, rebounded as a result of these actions? And you've mentioned such good examples. Are these being replicated with other communities upstream, downstream? Because it sounds so success successful. So I imagine 
this might be attractive to other communities to show the potential. Exactly, yes. So yes, things are quantifiable. We're kind of continually trying to quantify that. That's part of the conservation monitoring that I'm working on with the youth of teaching them to use camera traps and stuff. So we've got some numbers on the fish populations um, and fish fish health. I don't have them off the top of my head. Um, That's okay, no, no, it's in general. Yeah, no. Um, so we've been able to monitor that, but what we're trying to also monitor is how that's having greater impacts farther into the forest and on different species. So looking at the wider benefits um, in terms of species and population regeneration. And yeah, so this is... Um, so we're working in the Jingu right now. We had a year before we also did the same project or so have the same project, maybe a couple of years before in the Iriri River. So that's a tributary of the same river and it's the same model. It's got the guard station at the mouth of the river and fishing lodge or ecotourism lodge upriver from that. So that's in, in Kenjam is the, the village there. The community we work in has, yeah, I think nine maybe up to 12 villages now that work together on this project and has a guard station and then this guard station model has been super super effective so there's i think now 13 or so guard stations throughout the edge of the territory at um mouths of rivers or in in places where plane surveillance have found that there's you know roads trying to be built into the territory so then they'll place a guard station there and it's been really successful there hasn't even been a lot of conflict or anything at the guard stations it's really just the presence of having the Kayapo there and the people knowing that they can't have access to that territory that's stopping um, intrusions so that's that's been great. Nat let me go back to when you say that uh, the, the indigenous people have to take care of the law enforcement themselves how does it look like? Yeah so that's what these guard stations have been really really effective just their presence in these remote areas where people think oh we can just get in back here you know nobody's paying attention and then having the kaipo there so they they work in teams they'll have you know five or six kaipo at each one of the guard stations at all times and they'll do surveillance so they'll they'll either boat the river or they'll walk through the forest and and make sure they don't see anyone intruding um, they also do flyovers with planes to see if there's ever any equipment or cut roads or boats that aren't for, they're not familiar with and if there are they'll do expeditions to confront the illegal loggers and miners and um, basically a key thing is taking their equipment and or bringing bringing in law enforcement so they'll um, they will work with law enforcement and um, you know take photos of who's there and work to get people held responsible for what they're doing. Considering that you have the numbers that are coming up, you're quantifying your restoration efforts, you have the successful ecotourism and replicable activities. Have you had any success in persuading local government or government that this is much more profitable in the long term compared to short-term gains from deforestation, mining, or what have you? Not so much. I think not necessarily with the local governments, I would say. I think I think internationally and with conservation people that are funding and supporting conservation and sustainable development and those types of things are are definitely seeing this. It's definitely um, the successes are 
are really apparent. Um, you know, you can see the territory from space and and see the success that the indigenous groups having. They're they're fully autonomous, unconquered. They've got their territory. Um, all of this is super super successful. But I think you know, at that local level, like right at the right where they're existing in those frontier towns and the local governments and stuff there, and it's um, you know, there's a lot of illegal large-scale resource extraction industry that's got a lot of money and power behind them that are pushing for their access and that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a constant battle with that, for sure. Does that mean that within the next decade, it will be difficult to achieve real change? Or do you think that there's hope? And if so, what needs to happen? Exactly. I think I really think that um, that international support, I think there's a huge shift towards Indigenous rights globally, which is really, really exciting. Um, yeah, the global decade for ecosystem restoration, um, we've got COP15 with biodiversity protections, hopefully some really good international goals and objectives are set there and strategies. So I think all of it's coming together, sustainable development, sustainable products, all this stuff is really, I think it's forefront of mind internationally. So I'm super hopeful that that international community, that international policy and support will shift the mindsets of, you know, governments and policymakers in Brazil, as well as I, you know, I really do think it, it's not the responsibility necessarily of those places on the ground, but, but all of us that are, you know, purchasing gold in our cell phones or consuming Brazilian beef and, and supporting these industries, you know, they're, they continue to happen illegally because there's a market for them. And so we're the ones, you know, creating that market. And so it's our, our responsibility as well. So I hear you and you're absolutely right. The question is, how do we take action? So I've heard what you said, our listeners have heard you, but how can we all take action? And where should we go also? You can direct us to some of the important websites should we, we should be looking at or anything else you'd like to mention so that we can get involved and make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, supporting the Kaipo is amazing. So that's kaipo.org, K-A-Y-A-P-O.org. And following them and there's a number of Kaipo photographers and filmmakers on social media that um, do some beautiful work. And beyond that, you know, I think buying local foods and, you know, making sure that our cell phones are sourced responsibly, holding some of those companies accountable and not buying mahogany and ePay and these hard rainforests. Don't buy any, any wood products from a rainforest. Doesn't matter where it is in the world. It's surely not sourced sustainably. And, and yeah, looking for ways to support Indigenous people in their, in their conservation, whether that's the Kaipo or in any territory that we live and work on, I think is really, really important. I had to ask one more question, not very related to, to Kaipo, but nevertheless, I learned that you were an internationally recognized ski athlete. How do you combine those two? I definitely, I got into this sort of through ski racing. I um, was injured for a summer and, and went down to the Kaipo instead of ski training. And that's, that was the start of this. The one thing I really love with, with tourism um, and outdoor recreation as a, as a means for conservation and uh, restoration is that 
everyone's super passionate about what they're what they do they love their activities you know so we've got fly fishermen and birders and photographers come down and they're super passionate which is the same as I was with with skiing and it connects you to these places where I when I was skiing I was seeing climate change happen and I was you know getting really attached to the mountains and stuff where I was training and skiing and so you you build those connections with nature and with the environment that you're playing in or living in and and so that's really passion for conservation and the natural world more broadly and and I so I think that with this project with tourism there's this big opportunity to these fly fishers love fishing and so then they're super connected to uh, the river and they want to support it and they they learn a lot about it they're interested to learn and, and same with that so I think that's kind of how I got into this and how I see it I think the more that we can enjoy and have positive experiences in nature and have that need to protect it and I think we'll continue to grow. Well, thank you so much, uh, Nat. It's been amazing talking to you and to hear about all of your work, especially about building connections with nature and and how if you know if we care about it and we feel passionate about it, we'll do something. And so we just have to get out there and feel it, do it, and and we'll make a change. So we'll look out for you and your work, right, Mateus? Definitely. And I'd like to so thank you and also thank you, um, listeners, for joining us. And thank you to the podcast team, as usual. It's been wonderful to have you with us, leading us through this podcast. And stay tuned for next week's episode. Please don't forget to review us, as well as to talk about us on social media using our hashtag, Generation Restoration. This podcast has been brought to you by the United Nations Environment Programme Europe Office and the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations.